And now I invite you to take a Bible to open it to Matthew chapter 1. Verses 1 through 17 is where we will read. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you there in the pew, this is found on page 807. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Matin, and Matin, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And that'll conclude our reading for today, which you might be saying, really? (laughs) What is there to say uh, in a list of names? Well, actually, it's not just today, but even next week, we'll be back at this list of names to consider it. Today, considering the names that within it are repeated in David and Abraham and the significance of them and why they're repeated. And next week, coming back to this list of names to consider the names that would surprise us in a genealogy um, of a Jewish family in the first century. There are four different women in the genealogy who are mentioned here that we'll consider next week of who they were and why it is significant that Matthew would have included them. But it is for Matthew important as he's telling the story of Jesus to not start with Jesus, but that people would have a sense of the context of the significance of why he came. It wasn't, if you will, just some uh, foreign being, alien from outer space that all of a sudden decided to come and enter into this world. But there is a long story and a long tradition, many names and many experiences that precede the birth of Christ, that help us to understand the birth of Christ. An example, or just by way of comparison, for most of us, whether we believe in Jesus or not, at this time of year, we're thinking about Christmas, 
even if we're only thinking about it as a break from school or the potential of a party of our colleagues at work to celebrate the end of the year, or it might also be that we're getting together with family and friends. So whether we believe specifically about Jesus or not, we're thinking of this time of year in some sense of celebration, some idea of getting blessing or bonuses or gifts. And then there is pain and hurt that comes with it, but oftentimes it's because we think of some of the blessings that we don't have or some of the people that might not be a part of the celebrations in our lives like they used to be um, because they have gone on to be with the Lord. And there's a sadness in that. Even part of that sadness is still connected to most of us thinking about it as this time of celebration. And so then we think about in this season of gift giving, how is Jesus sort of the ultimate gift for us to receive, the gift that's better than all the gifts. And there's nothing wrong with that, and we'll spend part of our time thinking that way. The reality is no, no one in the first century that was a part of the people of God was wondering what kind of gifts they were going to get. They weren't hoping that they would really get a good Cyber Monday deal and then thankful that everyone who emailed you on Cyber Monday when you didn't order anything said, hey, we'll take your money on Tuesday too if you're willing to give it to us. Uh, that, that time hasn't ended. Uh, most of them weren't operating in that type of a framework to wonder what they would get. They were a people primarily longing for justice. The expectation for the Jewish people in the first century that a Messiah would come, that someone would enter into this story of Abraham and David and all these other people was a longing that someone would come and bring justice to this world. That someone would make the wrongs of this world right. And it's part of why for many of them, as Christ came and shared his message, they struggled to accept him as the Messiah. Because in, in many ways, he followed that tradition. The very first time he took the opportunity to speak in public and to explain to everyone why he was here, we have it recorded for us in Luke chapter 4. It's the first time in his own hometown at the synagogue where he takes the scripture and makes a commentary and tells everyone why he's here. He reads from Isaiah. This is in Luke chapter 4. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this is what all of them longed for in the Messiah. Who will come and give good news to the poor? Who will come and have something to say to those who've been left out, to those who've been abused, to those who've been neglected? Is there anyone who can do anything or say anything to those who are oppressed? That's what they longed for in the Messiah. And so Matthew, in going through the genealogy as he does to remind us that there's a backstory to the coming of Christ, if we're willing to consider it and willing to study it and know a bit of that story, we enter into the season with a completely different set of expectations of what it is that our hearts should long for.
And so the names that are repeated in Matthew chapter 1, the son of David, the son of Abraham, they're highlighted because these were two people in Israel's history who specifically had promises given to them. And part of the question in now the first century is wondering, so where's God at with those promises that he made? Does he keep the promises that he makes? The promise to Abraham was a promise to him that God would make a great nation to bless all nations. To go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, where God calls a man named Abram and says to him that he would take from him and make him into a great nation. And not then just a great nation that would conquer every other nation, but a great nation that could be a blessing to every other nation. And when God made that promise to Abram, it was amazing to him. It wasn't that Abram could look back and say, well, I guess, I mean, here's my family. I, I, I guess hopefully you can do something with them. He actually didn't have a family. He was married, but he had no sense, no children, no one that he had any vision that he was going to leave any of his wealth or possessions or land to. And God came to him and said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. So it wasn't just that God was going to sort of work with what he already had. The promise that God made in his life was to create something new, to give them the gift of children from which they would have grandchildren and great-grandchildren so that all these names that we now read and would wonder, did I say that right? Did I pronounce that right? I don't know that one. Let's just skip that one. All of these names are a testimony to God keeping his promise to Abram that from him there would be a great nation and that this nation would be a nation that would bless all nations. And so all of these names are important because they mark the faithfulness of God to someone who, when he heard God's promise, was obedient, left his home, and went to a land that he had not yet seen, but really had no idea what God would do through him to create this nation But still the question of how this nation was being a blessing to all nations, for most people here at the beginning of Matthew's story, they can't see it. Like, he couldn't see where the family would come from. They couldn't see now how, as a small group of people, as a tiny nation in an empire where people are picking on us, how are we going to be a blessing to all nations? We feel like we're getting picked on by all nations. We feel like we're getting taken advantage of by the people that are around us. And so part of the promise felt fulfilled and part of the promise did not. To David, the promise to him was that a great ruler would come from him to reign in righteousness. David was given the promise that there would always be someone who would come from his line to be a great ruler whose kingdom would be established forever, who would reign in righteousness. And in their day, as Matthew is telling this story, the person in charge who's ruling and reigning is not doing it in righteousness. Herod does not care about the plight of most of his people. He doesn't even care about the plight of his own family. He's one of the, one of the cruelest people to amass power. And they are wondering, God, what what are you up to? There's supposed to be a blessing to all nations. There's supposed to be a ruler reigning in righteousness. And so many of even the Jewish leaders who had some type of authority and power often were corrupt. 
used that authority in the temple and other means, again, to take advantage of situations rather than to give and to bless and to honor. But Matthew reminds us of these promises because he wants us to know that this is what Christ is coming into. Whoever is the Messiah who's going to come has to stand against these promises. What are you going to do to make this nation great, to bless all nations? And how are you going to bring about a rule and a reign of righteousness that our world desperately needs so that those who achieve power and opportunity use it actually to take care of those who can't take care of themselves rather than to manipulate the situations for their own good? And Matthew doesn't ignore any of that. He tells us a story, and we have to remember these names. We have to remember these stories to truly enter into the significance of why Christ came and what it means that he is the Messiah. The first part of our travels was a bit of trying to remember the names just of our own family story. The reason that we went to Croatia and to Serbia is because both uh, of my family heritage and my wife's family heritage are from that part of the world. And so I got to go to the hometown of my mother and see the house that she was born in and the hometown of my father and the house that he was born in. And then my wife's family are Germans in background, but they were Germans that lived in the former Yugoslavia. And so we had uh, very few, but pictures to take and addresses, or not even addresses, towns to go to, to try to find things and remember where we'd come from. One of the ones that was um, just ended up being the most impactful for us. Some of it I had been to before. This is the first time we were going together, but we had a picture of a memorial for which Amy's grandfather and a great uncle were on it. And it was a memorial that had, if you will, about 50 names on the front side of it and 50 names on the back side, because all of them were people who were killed at one time, once Germany started losing the war, and they were being pushed back out of Eastern Europe, back towards Germany. Uh, these people who didn't live in Germany, they lived there and had been there for generations, uh, were punished, though, for being of that ethnic background. Well, we only had a picture, and we had the picture of the front side of it. And her great-grandfather's name was not on the front. We'd heard that it was on the back. But the question was, could we find this, and could we verify if, in fact, that's the case? I speak very little Serbian, uh, but it was up to me and us, just the five of us in a car driving to a place we'd never been to before, and I went into a shop, and I showed a picture of this memorial, and I asked the gentleman there, has anyone seen this? And I said, no, we, none of them had seen it. None of them heard it for. It must be in the other town nearby, which isn't nearby. It's like a 40-minute drive because it's all farmland and you just kind of got to drive around it. And I said, but it's probably best if you check and ask at the local church. The priest there will, probably knows the most about the cemeteries in the town. So I go, there's two priests there. They both say, no, we've never seen this. We've never heard of it. It has to be in the next town. So we drive the 40 minutes around and get to the next town and we get the same story. Nope, there's never heard of this. <laughs> this isn't here. It, it, it has to be back in the other town. And no one seems to know where this is, but we're able to message a bit back and forth at home um, to Amy's relatives. And her grandmother says, I don't think it's in the one town or the other. I think it's where it happened. And so it's in a field between the two. Okay. Um, so we, we have to find someone older who might have heard of this and someone younger who might speak English. 
and we did. Uh, we stayed on the outskirts of the town, came back around 40 minutes, and saw an older man and a younger man, and I spoke my very broken English, explained what we were trying to find, and he'd never been to it before, but he said, I think I maybe know where this is. And so he got in the car, and we followed behind him, and eventually the road turned into a dirt path that really is only meant for tractors. But now we have a sense that this is, I think, where we're supposed to go. And as we went further back into the, the farmlands, you, got, you could see from afar the memorial with all the crosses set up and the monument. And then also, as you were going back there, you realized this is where things like this happen. Uh, all of these men were taken back there. They were first forced to dig their graves, and then they were placed in those graves. And we're in the middle of nowhere between two towns where people are assuming no one will know and no one will remember. That's where things like that happen. And it was significant and important to us to go and to say, we're going to find out where this is, and we're going to see the other side of this memorial. And so we did. And there was her great-grandfather's name and a great-uncle's name. And her own grandfather would have been one of the names among all the names, except he wasn't home when it happened. He was in Austria. And so to stand somewhere and just have a very real sense of, I wouldn't be here today if my grandfather was just home that day. And that means we wouldn't be here. That means these kids wouldn't be here. Yeah, we need to remember this. This matters. And by no uh, planning or intentionality on our own, the next day we went to visit my great-grandfather's hometown, which at the most recent family reunion that, he, that we had, a great-uncle shared about another memorial on my side of the family of my great-grandmother's brother who'd been executed in a, a somewhat of a similar way. And so that was a Tuesday. Wednesday now we're in my great-grandfather's hometown. I'm looking at his house. We go to the church where the memorial is. Everything is locked. I have to just jump a fence and hope nothing happens while jumping the fence. Um, but I did, and I found the memorial. and was able to take a picture of it. And then Thursday, we're at another place on the Danube River, again, where a memorial from World War II is there for all of the Jews of Novi Sad who were executed during the war. And it was, this is three days in a row where we're not just at graves, we're at mass graves. All of these names matter. And it's, it's on us if we don't remember and mark down the, the stories that precede us. But then it also makes you, you know, sort of evaluate your own faith. So what is it that I believe that could speak to all of these different names and all of these broken stories and all of these people longing for hope and justice. Not just wondering if they'll get the latest gift or the best deal on a price, but looking out in the world and saying, is God really there? Does he really care? And Matthew is unfolding the genealogy for us to remind us that this promise of a great nation and promise of a great ruler, the Messiah who has come is in this line so that he's going to reveal to us that he is a great God who keeps his promises. He knows all those names. He knows about what's happened to these people. He cares and he's here. And this is why he's come. This is the hope that he offers to us. To bring righteousness and justice 
to change people from the inside out so that they take their opportunities to give and to bless and not to manipulate and to steal and to destroy. And so this Jesus is the Christ who is the Messiah who's entering into this story. He's not detached from it. He's not unaware of it. And all the times that we wonder, where were you? Why did this happen? How could, how could God allow for this? Those are still questions that remain. But in the Christian faith, we believe that that God has entered into this story, that he knows about those realities and that he cares. And so then we enter into that longing of those people as we consider our own stories and that of others. We do, I don't just want Christmas to come. I need Christmas. I have nothing to stand on if he didn't come. There is nothing to say to the brokenness of this world if God didn't enter into it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your Son that as the all-knowing God, you know each and every story and each and every name and heartbreak and longing and desire that exists, even in this room. And so we thank you for that. And we thank you that your son was willing not to stay absent from all of it and to remain in heaven, but to enter into this world, to take on a name himself and to show us that all of our names and all of our stories matter. So we thank you for Jesus, the Christ. Thank you that he's the son of David and the son of Abraham. We thank you that you reveal to us that you do keep every promise you make in your time and in your way, but that you do come through for each and every one of us. And so it's to you that we look and to you that we pray and to you that we give all of our thoughts and doubts and hopes and expectations. In Jesus' name, amen.